The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. dealing with his earlier writings, particularly the soliloquies, and uh, I just rapidly review what we did say on the subject. He has just recently been converted to true Christianity, and so he believes the Christ of the scriptures, and now he must rethink his whole philosophical history. He had been brought up on Platonism and on Plotinianism, and he had begun to think that in Plato and in Plotinus, because they have a principle of unity, you could meet the skeptics who believe that there is no knowledge and that you could meet the dualists like the Manichaeans because you had an all-encompassing principle of unity. But he does realize that these people, the Platonists, do not speak of Christ, and he has come because he has become a Christian to realize that one needs to include Christ, but he hasn't yet thought out for himself how Christ truly fits into the picture. Now, so then he is trying to think through things and beginning to ask himself, how do I know then that God does exist? Well, he says, if it were true that God doesn't exist, it would still be true that it is God that doesn't exist, and therefore God does exist. Now, that is pure formal Platonism, you see. If it is true that God doesn't exist, suppose that the skeptics were right, they'd have to still presuppose a principle of unity in terms of which they would make their denial. That's his argument. And that was Plato's argument. That was Plotinus's argument. And therefore it would be true that this form would be there in terms of which you would have to deny the existence of any particular manifestation of God. Now that has been the stock and trade argument for the existence of God on the part of a lot of people ever since. Just like it is said, you can't deny the law of contradiction because to deny it you have to stand on it you can't deny that there's a floor here or that you have to stand on the floor to deny it well therefore on this basis it is said you have an absolutely unanswerable proof for the existence of God because in order to deny it you have to presuppose it well now that I think is a good argument if only it had good content That is to say, if only you took the Christian position and said, now look here, this is what we have to accept on authority. And because Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and he alone could say that, he alone knew who he was. No man could determine what he was. There were no standards by which to determine. So alone Christ could say who he was, and alone God can say who he is. And therefore, if you argue you must presuppose this in order to deny it. Like I try to illustrate that little girl that sits on her daddy's lap to slap him on the face. Unless the daddy held her up on his lap, she couldn't slap him in the face. She would have no pousteau, nothing on which to stand. If you want to move an iceberg, but you're on the water next to the iceberg, it's you that will sink into the water. It won't be the iceberg that moves. You have to stand on that which you are denying. Now, that is, I would say, in itself 
an excellent argument. It is not only an excellent, it's the only argument. But then it isn't an argument in the sense in which the non-Christian speaks of arguments, don't you see? Because it is just simply to accept the Christian position on authority, on the say-so of God through Christ himself, and then you say, now, very well, you reject this. You don't reject this because it is illogical. Uh, you do reject this because you think it is illogical, because creation out of nothing cannot take place. You say it is against the law of contradiction to say that anything new can come. All reality has to be in already. That's what Parmenides said. It's irrational and it's rationalist. Irrationalist, rationalist. The Christian position is said to be both. That's the charge they make against our faith. Particularly if you're a Calvinist, that's what they'll say against you because they say you have an arbitrary God who simply, without giving any good reasons, some elect some people to heaven and sends other people to hell. On the other hand, it's rationalism because it's determinism. God controls whatsoever comes to pass, and on the basis of that absolute determinism in metaphysics, you base your rationalistic argument, this must be that and this must follow that. Now, that is what they charge against us, but this is not the way St. Augustine approached it at this time. He was still approaching it without bringing in his Christian position to begin with. He brought that in later. He thought he could get it in by way of proving it, by proving it and then believing it afterwards. Well, now, at the middle of his life, when he wrote his article to Simplicium, Simplicium, then he begins to realize that man, a Christian, must start with his Christian position. And that is the way he finally works it out. And that is why he is the great church father of early history. Now, that doesn't mean that he has totally gotten absolutely rid of his Neoplatonism. And people can always point to the fact that there is in Augustine the leftover of this scale of being idea. All being is good, and the being down here, even of a fly, is good because it's rather better to be than not to be, even if you only be a fly. Well, that is all very true. But the big point is that he's on the right way and that he's moving and that he's going on toward the Christian position and that he's gradually becoming conscious of the fact that, as Tertullian had already said, live out of your own resources. What has Jerusalem to do with Athens and what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Now, you remember that we talked about Tertullian and that he worked up the doctrine of the Trinity better than anybody before him. He gave us the terminology that we still employ. Three persons, one substance, and that he says you have to therefore get your theory of reality, your theory of knowledge, and your theory of behavior or ethics from the scriptures. Well, this is what he does in respect to the Trinity. We can't go into details, but that is his major contribution to the Trinity, building upon Tertullian, going even further than Tertullian, and stressing, look, we have a triune God. Certainly, that is not the God of Plato, that abstract principle, or of Aristotle. The unifying abstract principle is not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures is not an one abstract, impersonal principle. We are, if you wish to say, monotheists. We believe in one God, but we do believe that this one God is tripersonal. Now, this is certainly as Warfield stresses, something that must be given you by revelation. But strictly speaking, of course, it's true of everything. 
your totality outlook is given you by revelation because everything that you believe about this created world is is dependent upon the activity of this one triune God. He is the creator. This God over there never is a creator of this world. He is at most always a correlative interdependent principle. You can see that most clearly in Aristotle's philosophy. When er even Gilson, the Roman Catholic advocate of combining Aristotle with Christianity, says, if Aristotle's God is one, he is one because he has no connection with this world. You obtain the one of Greek philosophy by the dropping off of individual characteristics, by negation. You say, it's not this, not that. It's these characteristics are dropped, and you go higher, and you go higher, until at last you have one, then you have no content. All right, therefore, the oneness can be maintained only if the absolute negation is maintained. The moment you are supposed to make any use of that one as an explanation of this world, as the source of its existence, as a creator, well, it's not there to do it. Because the moment there's contact, the oneness disappears into plurality. Now, is, I wonder if there's any question about that. This, this makes the, the Roman Catholic position so fantastically foolish. Now, I'm saying that deliberately. It's fantastically foolish because, and you see, the Roman Catholic position seems so nice. It's, it's moderate realism. Even Herman Bobbing, the great Reformed theologian of the Netherlands, uh, talks about the moderate realism of Romanism. Thomas Aquinas is pretty good. And you have not too much of this. He says you don't have too much empiricism, nor you have too much rationalism. If you go too far with empiricism, knowledge disappears, everything falls to pieces. If you go too far with rationalism, knowledge again disappears. You have only one abstract unity or principle left without diversity. And so you have to have a moderate combination of these two. Well, unfortunately, that moderate combination springs from a combination of Aristotelianism with Christianity. And you never can have a combination of those two. Uh, what were you going to say? All right. By all means, raise your hand and ask questions. Then the Roman Catholics more or less start with man, and they say that man cannot be God like God in this way, so they strike that out and work up to God. Is that their starting point? Yeah. You see, yeah. You see, we started at the beginning with saying, look here, Adam and Eve in paradise introduced the idea of human autonomy because they were unwilling to listen to God who says do this and you shall live through that and you shall die. Now that's human autonomy. Now that underlies all apostate thinking. And you see that binds them all together. And that's why Paul says that they are creature worshippers rather than creator worshippers. And that's why there are only two kinds of people in the world. Not Dutchmen and non-Dutchmen, but creature worshippers and creator worshippers. Now, and then in the second place, uh, they take for granted that the world hasn't been created by God and that therefore the facts of the world, including man himself, but also the facts of his environment are just there. Now that is pure contingency, principle of individuation. In other words, why the individual facts are what they are is not true for any particular reason at all. It's just a grab bag. It's a bottomless, shoreless ocean chance. 
Then, in the third place, they have to have a pure, non-Christian, pure, rationalistic principle of unification. By rationalistic, I mean a position which finds its source of reason, of the intellect, not in God the Creator, but in man himself or in the universe. It makes no difference whether you find that rationality in the universe. The Greeks do. The moderns don't. Kant and subsequent to Kant, people find man's principle of unification in man himself, isn't that so? The a priori. But these three principles, which of which the autonomy principle is the basic one, you, with the philosophy of chance as factuality, and the, well, if you just use the, remember the simple illustration, you have to string all the beads by means of a string. You see, we have God who has strung all of these. He has a plan that all includes everything. If you reject God, then you have to do it, right? That's the only alternative there is, all right? And, and God has the beads and they've got holes in them for him because he, can, he has made them that way. So eating the persimmons, that's point number one. Death is point number two. That's the way he has arranged it. And that's true of all relationships of all facts in this whole universe. You reject that, well, then you've got beads without holes in it. I mean, there are, you can't even count. You're not uh, able to account for counting. Now, when I say you can't count, I don't mean that people are crazy or anything of the sort. But you have no principle in terms of which you can account for the fact that people can count. And that's the thing to stress, I think, because, you see, you must not admit that the Christian, the non-Christian, has any foothold in any field at all. If you admit that he has a foothold and that he can get started, don't you see? But then from there on he can work out. Well, now, the Greeks were the children of Adam and Eve, the descendants, so that's why all is water, all is air. That is, their first assumption is this monistic assumption that there is no creator-creature distinction, that all being is one. See, that makes it so horribly God-defying instead of open-minded neutralism, as your textbooks and philosophy say, and as so many Christian teachers in Christian colleges swallow this thing, hook, line, and sinker, don't you see? Now, if you simply take your Bible at face value, then you have to say, you have to interpret the whole of life, and then you have, in terms of it, and then you have to say these people were the descendants of those that had in Adam and Eve become apostate and that they have a reason for holding under. Now you see that this fits in perfectly with what Paul says that man knowing God he knows better. He knows that the, this thing is true. I know I'm a Dutchman. I know I walked in shoes. And I can't ever make myself believe that I didn't. I went to the Orient one time. I couldn't pass myself off as an Oriental at all. We have Oriental students over there. They can't come to us and say, we were born in Hershey, Pennsylvania, or in Miami, Florida. It just can't be done, don't you see? Their speech bereath them, and their appearance bereath them. Now, all right, man knows that he is this. The prodigal son knows that he comes from the father's house. Do you think for a moment that when the prodigal was at the swine trough that he didn't know that he had run away from home? Of course he knew. Nobody else knew he hadn't told the same person and so, but he knew. Well, now that's the thing I would say always to start with, not to stand there on knowing God. But the second point is holding under this truth and unrighteousness.
And that's what this man does. And how does he do it? By means of constructing a philosophy that will make himself believe that he's doing justice by the facts and that he isn't guilty. You see, a guilty conscience is a pretty difficult thing to live with. And of course, uh, everybody has a guilty conscience, and so everybody's making himself believe. Well, I've, I'm looking at all facts, I'm open-mindedly organizing them, and I'm trying to find out, is there a God? I would be glad to find a God if there were one. And I think I'm happy I've di discovered a God. Not he hasn't really discovered one, because you see, he hasn't, in the case of Plato or Aristotle, he hasn't discovered him, because you see, the moment he has any knowledge of him, then he disappears as unified, one again. Then he becomes, and he's mixed in with this world of chance again. He becomes correlative to it. Well, maybe that, if that point isn't clear, I wish you would just ask the questions. I don't care how many and how often. Well, now, that is this, this is the background of the Greek thinking with which the church fathers, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Clement of Oregon, Clement of Alexandrian origin, and none of them had yet, though Augustine, when Augustine came, had any, given any satisfactory way of answering, of seeing the contrast between the two positions. Now, Tertullian came nearest to doing it, and he did more toward preparing materials with which to do it. You might say like David prepared the materials so that his son Solomon could build an could build a temple. Well, so Tertullian prepared much material. Now, Augustine, in his earlier writings, and that is why I keep coming back to these soliloquies, and then he has a second book at that time, De Utilitate Credendi. What's the use of believing, the usefulness of believing? Well, he says, he uses the illustration of these three young men, or three boys in a furnace in the, in the prophecy of Daniel, you remember? Now, uh, how do I believe a story like that? He says, uh, I heard of, I've seen three boys, he says, and I've seen a fire, but I've never seen three boys burning in a furnace of fire and coming out alive. He says, I've never seen anything like that. It's in the realm of the physical, it would be. The ingredients are there, individually I know them, but how do I believe that that sort of thing, now that means that I have to believe absolutely unauthority. Well, now that would be all right, don't you see? That's just precisely what we ought to do. But then, you see, he had at the same time his principle of rationality. If it is true that God doesn't exist, then it is still true that it is God that does exist, and therefore God does exist. Therefore, he was a rationalist, and Carnell speaks of him as a flaming rationalist. That's one of Carnell's typical expressions, eloquent. Well, he was a flaming rationalist and a flaming, hot-burning irrationalist, if you will, at this early stage. And he had not yet seen how to put the two together. You cannot put the two together unless you presuppose the Christian position. Then you say God has his reasons, he has a plan, and you believe that on authority. And then your faith is not faith in something that is utterly disconnected and unreasonable, like couldn't give any reasons. You can give perfectly good reason for the three boys in the furnace if you take the totality picture of scripture. Man created in the image of God under the wrath of God. God bringing redemption into this world. And now this is part of the plan of redemption, don't you see? Then it all hangs together, as Dr. Mason would say. It all hangs together, hang it all. Now, uh, 
Now, then let's see the city of God in his later writings. Now, this always reminds me when he writes the city of God of Noah and the days of Noah. You remember Noah was all alone and he was building an ark. How long, by the way, did it take Noah to build the ark? Does anybody here tell me? 120 years? Is that in the Bible? You know, my wife and I had a big fighting argument about that. I saw that 120 years, and she says, where do you find that? And I couldn't find it. It's there, isn't it, somewhere? Oh, well, if you find it, you'll get a nickel, because I want to be, come home and tell my wife I learned down here Noah built the ark. 120 years. All right, now, look, I'm just going to use this as an illustration and just take five minutes to do it. Here was... Noah, and here were the children of Seth, and here were the children of Cain. And this line had sort of gotten thin, you know, and there were nice-looking girls over there. And uh, so there was intermarriage, and there was intermingling, and pretty soon it was one mess. <laughs> Jesus says, does he not? As were the days of Noah, so shall the days of the Son of Man be. They were eating and drinking, giving and marriage, marrying, nothing wrong with any of those things, all good in themselves. But not... They, had, they were wiping out the one line of distinction that God was affecting for the redemption of his people. So then, Noah, we find, found grace in the sight of God. Found grace, that's the starting point. And then Noah walked with God. A man that has found grace in the sight of God, who is picked out for the doing of a job so that the Messiah may come into the world, he must walk with God. Now, Enoch had walked with God. But at this time, God wasn't ready at that stage to start this redemptive work of building an ark. So he took Enoch to heaven. One that walks with God will naturally go to heaven, and he'll be taken out of this world. But we read the same thing about Noah that we read about Enoch. He walked with God, and yet God doesn't take him to heaven. Right? Why? Because God wants him to build an ark in this world. And he says, now get yourself ready, Noah, because I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. So God tells him about the future, the future of the phenomenal world, right? Rain, lots of rain, more rain, floods. They certainly are not in the numeral realm, are they? They're not in Geschichte. They're in history. They're right here. Well, so Noah has a philosophy of the future. And on what did he base it? Because God took talk to him, Senkrecht von oben, straight down from above, God appeared to him and said to him, the wickedness of the world is so great, I can't bear the sight of it anymore, I'm going to destroy it with the one comprehensive flood. And so Noah hires his carpenters, and they begin gathering the materials, and they begin building the ark. And so they say to him at lunchtime one day, well, no, Mr. Noah, we like you. you we, don't have any, we don't intend to strike against you. You give us good wages, and we like to work here, and it's good working conditions, everything else. Ah, but will you not kindly tell us, why do you build an ark, a ship, on the top of a mountain? That doesn't seem to make very good sense. Is this a museum? Going to be a museum piece? And then the parents would take their children down there to see old man Noah. He was getting a little older by this time. What a queer individual this is who's building the ark. That's gonna, if you ever have gone on the old Route 30 
in the old days through Pennsylvania, you saw on the top of one of those hills a ship-like building, and on top of it a telescope, and then you put a nickel in in those days. Now it's a dime or a quarter. And then uh, Daddy would look through, and then Mother would look through, and then the children, I mean the children and Mother and Daddy, <laughs> would look through by turns. Now they've got telescopes galore, and you can all simultaneously say, Oh, well, don't you see? That's all very well for tourist attraction, but this was not a tourist attraction, was it? This wasn't a tourist attraction. This was the covenant of God being established in the world that was corrupt before God, and God was destroying it with a flood. So that was the future. And so he said to those people, look, there's a flood coming. Uh, and, and why is that flood coming? Why? Well, because of your sins. Your sins. Your sins. Your, your, your. He accused every one of them that came. He said, not you and you, you bad ones, not the bad individuals, but all of us, I too, except I have found grace in God's sight. You, and then we are told he became a preacher of righteousness. That is, he lived up to the law of God, and by living up to it, before he opened his mouth to say anything, he was already a preacher, an eloquent preacher of righteousness. Nobody kept the law. They all believed the new morality. And don't you see, he lived the old morality. And so he was therefore a preacher of righteousness. And so he says, look, there's something happened in the past. Why the future is going to be destruction. And that's why the present means I have to build an ark, and that's why I'm working so hard. And he got an alarm clock. He didn't require anything reasonable. Now, he had a philosophy about the future given him directly by revelation. And he had... And that philosophy of the future involved the philosophy of the past. He had a metaphysical view, didn't he, about the physical universe, about the phenomenal realm, not about some other world. Religion wasn't something, as they thought it was, something that pertained to the other world and everybody could think about it the way he pleased and everybody could have his own views on it. It didn't matter. We were all good people in this world for, for Noah. Religion meant the activity that he was engaged in when he was driving nails and building this ark, don't you see? That's as practical and as close. His whole life was a religious activity, a self-consciously, self-obediently uh, covenantal activity. He was a covenant keeper, the covenant that God made with him. All right, so then, he says, now let's sit down, boys. Let's have a little discussion. Let's have a dialogue. Huh? That's the proper thing, wasn't it? The dialogue. Noah's dialogue with his carpenters. Now, about the future. Well, who knows about the future? Except by what has happened in the past. Floods? Well, there, have, there are no records at Harvard or Yale or Chicago, don't you see? Now, in Harvard, don't you see? They talk pretty much like you people do. Harvard. <laughs> Is that right? Harvard. And Yale and Chicago, no records, mind you, of floods having anywhere come anywhere near that high. And so they said, well, certainly we have to interpret the course of the future by what it will probably be, don't you see, by what has happened in the past. Now, we've had pretty high floods. You remember the flood, that big flood of, of 100 years ago? You're now 969 or nearby. You remember we had one about 300 years ago. But we never had one 
of the sort that Noah is predicting. Now, Noah is predicting this on the basis of revelation that has come to him, don't you see? So his whole philosophy of the future, of the past, and of the present, his whole theory of knowledge, and his whole theory of morality was based on this revelation that God gave to him in distinction from the others. And then on the basis of that, he was willing to make his argument with the people, every one of them. He was alone, now literally, alone. Don't you see? We're not quite alone. We're getting close to being alone. And we ought to take courage from Noah that he was willing to stand up on his hind legs alone. But he did that because he believed this revelation of God, don't you see? And then he argued about the future. Destruction. Now Jesus said the days of the Son of Man will be like where the days of Noah, that all people will not believe. They will practically all of them followers of the new morality. And they will be existentialists. Sat will be their philosopher. The God is dead theologians will be their theologians, or some such. That will be the consistent working out of it. And then we have to, and we now must say to the world in general that this world will be destroyed as it is. There will be a new heavens and a new earth on which righteousness shall dwell. Unrighteousness is practically sweeping over the world, isn't it, today? I don't mean to say this is just now, five minutes before the end, or nobody should predict time. But the situation is almost identically the same. Now, on what basis? On the basis of the sin of Adam. Now, I suppose Adam used to take his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren on his knees and confess to them that horrible thing that he had done in paradise. A bad, hard thing for a father, grandfather, great-grandfather to tell. But this is pure imagination, of course. But that we can understand that he was horribly chagrined and horribly self-defeated, self-frustrated. But he had been, no doubt, also given this, he was given this mother promise, and we have reason to think that he had hopes for the future on that account. Well, now then, you have a philosophy of the past, a philosophy of the present, a philosophy of the future. And that involves every fact in the universe, and it involves most specifically the facts of what Today is called the I-it dimension, the phenomenal world, don't you see? Those facts are all of them in debate. There is not one square foot of neutral territory between Noah and his people that he's working with. Now, he treats those people well, he pays them well, and all of that. He should live with them in peace and all of that, but he has a building program of his own. Now, I'm just using that as an illustration. Augustine is the first one of the major Christian theologians that sees this issue at all clearly. He didn't first, don't you see, when he was still under the influence of Neoplatonism. Then he didn't see that there was a different philosophy of the future, of the past and of the present, involved in that which he had believed, come to believe when the words that came to him, Talalega, take up and read this story of man's creation in the image of God, the world created by God, man fallen from God, Christ Jesus come to save men from their sins and the wrath to come. That's a new Augustine. You've got a new philosophy of reality, a new theory of knowledge, a new theory of ethics. 
he hadn't yet begun to see the wealth, just as if somebody has handed you a check of a million or a few billion dollars. You just don't know yet what that means, what you can do with it. And, uh, but gradually he was becoming. So then he begins to work this out. And he says there is a city of God, a kivitas dei. And then he says there is a city of man, which is inspired by Satan, a kivitas terena. And he says they have different origins. And they have different histories and they have different conclusions. You see how similar that is to Noah and his contention? Now, he argues about the difference in origin between the two cities. Well, he doesn't mean that the people of God are supposed to separate themselves and live in separate communities. That's not what he means. Oh, he had a monastic tendency in his thinking. The Roman Catholics like to claim him for their principles of church polity and monasticism, what have you. But by and large, what Luther and Calvin later believed is already here a warning. That is to say, here in this world, redemptively, God through Christ is building his kingdom. Now you remember that when Jesus began his service on earth, he said, I have come to bring the kingdom of heaven, and I am the king of that kingdom, and I want people that are pure in heart poor in spirit, pure in heart, to dwell in this kingdom. I want them self-consciously to adopt the principles of that kingdom and then to labor in that kingdom and to fight for the king of that kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean externally, first of all. There may be occasions when external separation is indispensable, but that's not his purpose. Now then, where does this kingdom come from? Well, it comes basically from the inspiration of Satan. His spirit has gotten into mankind, and he it was that affected the wiping out of the separation between the children of Seth and the children of and the children of Cain. And he it was that therefore affected the confusion, worse confounded, that resulted. Very well. That's the kingdom. And you remember how Jesus tells the Pharisees, Ye are of your father the devil. I am from God the Father, the Creator, the Redeemer of men. And how Jesus says to Satan, Get thee behind me, Satan. You can't give me the kingdoms. They're not yours to give. I will. They are yours in the sense that you have usurped them and you have entered as the controlling spirit into the nations and have entered into this people of God. So, but I will take this kingdom from you and I will destroy you. And when Jesus is on trial toward the end of his life, then Satan is in the rafters when Caiaphas sits on the high priestly throne and says, what have need, need have we of further witnesses? He himself has said he is the son of God. That's what think ye? That's blasphemy, they said. Out with him. And so they hand him over to Pilate. Now, there are the two origins, Christ's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. Don't you see? Two different origins. Well, the reason for the necessity of the work of Christ is, of course, the entrance of sin into the world. Well, then the progress of the kingdom. This is, of course, the progress primarily of the Church of Christ. That through the work of the apostles who were given the Holy Spirit to put down once for all the interpretation that Christ gave of his work. On that they must build, he says, you will be on 
on this rock, he said to Peter, that is on this teaching. You are the foundation stones of the church. I am the chief foundation, to be sure, but you are assigned to this task. Well, so then there is the coming of the history of this kingdom. And here you have Greek philosophy is under the, is the kingdom of Satan. Now, how do I dare to say that about nice people like Plato and all of that? Well, they weren't so nice, for one thing. But let them be as nice as they want to. That's common grace. But in their hearts, they are not those that recognize God as their creator. The confessions put a threefold standard for a good work. It must be to the glory of God. That's the aim. And it must be according to the word of God. That's the standard. It must be from faith. Those three principles. My wife and I once upon a time went to California all the way across the continent. We followed the Grapes of Wrath Trail and go west, go west. Sometimes there was a detour and the road would go like this and maybe even for a bit backward again and I would be worried. But my wife would say, just follow Route 66. Don't you see? Route 66. Now the 66 went east here for a bit. But it came back again and we landed in California. That was our goal, our aim at that time. We didn't know any better. We should have gone south. <laughs> but we wanted to go all the way to California. California, here I come. That is, that's the goal. The orange trees. We wanted to pick oranges, you see. Off. All right. That. And then I had my old Dodge, don't you see? And since that, I've had a Buick, and now I've got a Pontiac. I'm getting up in the world. But then I had an old Dodge. Now, suppose that the Dodge stood there and it had no gasoline or had gasoline, but no spark. All right, faith, you can have a Cadillac. You can have the most expensive, most beautiful car. If there's no spark, no ignition, you won't get places. All right, this is a very simple, all-inclusive way to test what the scripture speaks of as what are good works done to the glory of God according to the standard, the criterion of the word of God revealed through Christ in scripture and from faith. None of those things are present in those who are of the kingdom of darkness, of Satan. The Greeks didn't do to the glory of God. One iota of tittle of the things they did. Do you think Plato thought out his theory of ideas to the glory of God? Of course he didn't. Do you think he did it? And do you remember old Sock? How he said, please tell me what the good is, regardless of what gods or men say about it. If God likes it, and if he wants to join with us in striving for the good, so much the better, the more the merrier. We like it if he's there too. But we don't want him to presume that he can tell us what the good is. Now, I'm living and having my being with these four or five youngsters over there. Mr. Green is there to control them a little bit. But now suppose that they're all pretending, you see, to be on a par with one another. Don't you see? But suppose that one set himself up above the others and said, you boys, you all have to do what I tell you. It wouldn't set well with the others. Now, Socrates says, God mustn't set up as though he's bigger than better than we are. He's older. He's a lot older. I don't know how old he is. But he's no doubt older than Methuselah. But he is nevertheless 
has no more right in himself to dictate to us. Now you see how that Greek spirit, which is so signally and so perfectly expressed in Socrates' attitude, that he wants to know the idea of the good independently of what God and men say about it. Well, that is the apostate spirit, that's the satanic spirit, which works through all apostate thinking. And it is this that St. Augustine has to deal with. And now he says, look, my fellow Christians, we have been taken out of this, and we have a different origin. Christ has reached down, he has redeemed us, he has set our feet on solid ground. Now then, we must live for a different aim to the glory of God. We have a different origin, and we have a different standard. For us, the revelation of God in Christ is the standard, and we have a different goal, namely, the goal of history is the complete victory of Christ over all the forces of darkness. The powers of hell shall not prevail against them. Now, that, you see, is what he is setting forth in the city of God. Now, this is a magnificent piece of work. It's one of the great classics of all the Christian church. Don't you see? It's, there are some great things that all of you should dip into, and so far as you can read, and to become filled with the spirit of it. Now, ask any questions, if you wish. Now, let's come, then, to the anti-Pelagian writings, for which he is, in a sense, most fully known, the anti-Pelagian writings. Well, you know how often... Yes? Do the Roman Catholics, when they use the as, as a foundation, do they follow him through in the progress of... of uh, or did they just take it, say, right after he became a Christian when he was still wrestling with Jesus? Yes. Oh, they, they, put their foundation. they certainly don't follow him through, see. Then they wouldn't be Roman Catholics if they did, you see. I mean, uh, the, the Reformers have every right to claim Augustine as their father. Now, that doesn't mean that Augustine yet worked out some of the things that the Reformers did work out, soteriologically and all of that. But certainly, the way here was being laid, uh, the way was being pointed out for the coming of the Reformation, we'll come to this sad intermezzo in a moment, the, what developed in the way of the Roman Catholic separation from, I mean, departure from this life again. Any other question? Well, now, this is toward the end of his life. You remember that, I didn't point it out, I guess, in his early writings he wrote about the freedom of man. Now, in the early days, the early church fathers, all of them, tended to stress the freedom of man because, you see, here was Manichaeanism, and here that was a dualism, and man wasn't free, and there were monisms, according to Platonism, according to some interpretations at least, of there were determinisms, and man wasn't free and wasn't responsible. But now, Augustine sees that de ser serva servo dei, as vera libertas est, to serve God is the true freedom. Now, this is, of course, an anticipation of what Calvin does, page one in his Institutes. We are creatures of God and are free as creatures under God to do his will and to live in joy in his presence. But we become slaves to sin, and that's anything but freedom. We're living in servitude. 
You remember Luther wrote a book on the slavery of sin. And now then we are set free, free through the work of Christ. You remember Jesus speaks of those that are whom he has set free are free indeed. Now does that mean that they are free, metaphysically free, in the sense of being independent of God and that they can now initiate anything that they please quite regardless of what God has planned and what God wants them to do? That isn't freedom. That to him is not tyranny. That's slavery. That's the bondage house of sin. That's Egypt from which he has been set free. Now that was Greek philosophy, don't you see? Greek philosophy is based upon this notion of autonomy, which they think of as freedom, which actually is slavery. Now, Augustine has realized that he has become free in Christ, and that therefore he is the heir of God and the joint heir with Christ of all good things for this life and for the life to come. Well now, he now realizes that his predecessors and he himself, when he was under the influence of Neoplatonism and of Plotinianism, that he himself, don't you see, had had this false notion of freedom. And in his retractions, everybody, when he gets old, ought to write retractions. I'm writing mine now, <laughs> taking back all my earlier heresies. I don't know what I'm going to do with my present ones because I don't know those yet. Uh, but the point is, he was later on writing retractations, is that it? Retractions. Well, he sees that how much, how mistaken he had been in his earlier days. Now, it's amazing that he didn't retract more than he, that he did. I think he should have retracted a lot more. But at any rate, don't you see, he now has a vision of freedom, which is freedom in Christ. And that fits in with his conception, don't you see, of the kingdom, of the, of the, of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Will you ask a question? Now, any questions? Let's look at St. Augustine then as he emerges in connection with the Greek philosophers, Thales and Aximander and Eximenes, who had repressed, held under the truth of God revealed in this world in unrighteousness, who said all is one, all comes out of the one, all returns to the one. Those were the principles that underlay all Greek philosophy. Professor A. A. Bowman, who used to be my teacher at Princeton University, would sum up Greek philosophy in these three expressions. All is at the bottom one. And all diversity that we see comes out of that oneness. And all this diversity returns to that oneness. All is one. All comes, diversity comes out of that one. All returns to the one. Now, if you would read Dr. Shedd's History of Doctrine. You remember Dr. Shedd, the Reformed theologian? He speaks of Greek theism. Greek theism. How do you like that term? How do you like the idea? His idea is, well, there were these materialists like Thales and Eximander, and they said all is water. And what silly stuff is that to say all is water? And materialism and mechanism. But in general, when you come to Plato, 
they recognized there was a beyond and that God was up there and they proved God's existence and though they didn't have by any means all the knowledge that we have about God and they certainly had no knowledge of Christ nevertheless they were theists and so we can go on to build upon their position now I'm quoting a, a reformed theologian gentlemen I'm not now referring to the Roman Catholics of whom you would expect this sort of thing but a reformed theologian now this, I would say, is an absolute misnomer of an expression that is calculated to lead you totally astray in your thinking. Theism isn't theism unless it's Christian theism. Don't you see? The God of the Greeks is not the God of Christianity at all. They don't, they are atheists. They don't believe in God and that all that they lack is that they do not also, in addition, believe in Christ. Well, people will say, what could you expect? They didn't have the revelation of Christ. But when it came, they were ready for it. And it fitted pretty well on their plan. Suppose I have built, somebody years ago built a house and he has a, had built the first story and now you come along and you say well I guess I can build on that and I'll build a second story on it now that is of course the way the Roman Catholics proceed to do but it is certainly not as it seems to me the way that we as Christians should. now are there any questions about here is I think a magnificent experience that all of us may have going through the development of St. Augustine look a long way that he's come we should not, first of all, be critical of St. Augustine. We should, first of all, praise God for St. Augustine. Also for these church fathers, for Justin Martyr, for Irenaeus, for Tertullian, and even, in a sense, for Clement and for Origen, though those rascals were too concessive altogether, even to have much to do with it all. But the point is that now we have, for the first time, an insight, a beginning to have an insight into the fact that we as Christians, when we have read, as Augustine had read, Talalega, take up this book and read. And then you will see that you don't have a philosophy of man in himself, nor a philosophy of facts by itself, nor a principle of abstract unification, but that you have given to you a universe like an estate that is given to you in which you may do anything you please within the ordinances of God. And that then, if you do that to the praise of God, then it will be well with you, and it will be to God's praise. Now, does the church, after this, enter upon the riches that St. Augustine has dug out of the word of God? Well, look at this rascal Dionysius, the Areopagite, and look at Scotus Origina, and then look at the development of matter, medieval thinking. Who was Dionysius the Areopagite? Well, of course, we have this problem about knowing who he was, but we're not interested. Uh, first of all, in his personal identity, the point is that he, whoever he was, wrote a famous book on the divine names, and that he said, look, we have here, we have here the Christian story. And we believe that Christian story. But now we must make this Christian, in story, Christian story intelligible to the world. And you, you will understand that people aren't ready to receive this Christian story. 
right off the bat. So let's allegorize it. Let's say Adam stood for the idea that somewhere at the beginning of history, wrong has come into the heart of man, don't you see? So what he did is he took the Greek philosophy, which he had learned, of which man is the center, and facts, brute facts, and abstract logic. He interpreted the Christian story in terms of principles that he had borrowed, that he took over from Christian, from non-Christian, from pagan thinking. Now, here was Plotinus. This is the warfare now. Plotinus versus Augustine. Plotinus, the latest of the Greek philosophers, he had inherited Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, and everything that was best of Greek philosophy. He had concocted a great comprehensive amalgam, a system, in which he has the scale of being. God is absolute being. Down here is non-being, and between there is partial being, and we are somewhere on the way up. And to attain to perfection, to attain to salvation, you must be lifted up in the scale of being. That was Plotinus' system. He's the greatest, here, the great Greek position in this last great Greek philosopher, stands over against the position of the first great Christian theologian. The Christian position is best expressed by Augustine so far. It is best expressed, the paganism is best expressed <coughs> by Plotinus. There is no dialogue between them. There's only the dialogue of those who are trying to kill each other off between them. After St. Augustine learns to, to realize what Christianity really is, then he now offers the tools for his followers, for the Christian church, to reject this position and to say Christianity is not a question of being lifted up in the scale of being and lifted up into being. Here is the holy other, here is the anonymous, here is the ineffable oneness, here is the super essential deity into which we must be absorbed. That is salvation. And Plotinus had had experience of this mystical uplifting. And as he was about to die, there was a serpent that crawled into its hole. He says, the way the serpent crawls into its hole, the way that way, I am going back into God. Now, here, and this is one thing that Bobbing, the Reformed theologian, has done a great deal of good distress. The real biblical principle is ethical. It's the question of sin and salvation, of ethical hostility to God and forgiveness. It is not a question of metaphysics, of being. You're not bad because you're low in the scale of being, low in the scale of being that you're dumped there by a fate or by chance that you are here and that you say, well, now, let's see if LBJ can't straighten the universe out of it. See, that's this, the lifting and the scale of being. That's LBJ's program. I hope you don't get any funny ideas about my political sympathies. <laughs> well, here you have it. Now, what's happening, the first thing that happens when Dionysius the Areopagite appears upon the scene, let's have dialogue, he says. 
Let's not have this fundamentalist, modernist controversy to the death, but let's have dialogue. Let's sit down at the conference table. And we all have so much in common, don't we? And we all want the higher things of life. And we want to have people, all people, to escape from the lower aspects of life. We know that people, when they're down here in the ghettos and so forth, and we all have that in us. We have the disfiguring detritus of the seaweeds of the deep upon us as we have oozed from non-being and directed up. Let's have dialogue. And so what he introduced, he says, I'm... I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Southern Presbyterian. I've read Dabney and Gerardo. And I, I'm Presbyterian, boys. And I have as much right to be in the church as you have. And, but, aber, we now must interpret this Christian business sensibly. And so he took the principles of Greek philosophy in order to interpret this thing sensibly. And that's the contribution in quotation marks, that Dionysius Areopagite made. And Scotus Origina, he followed after the division of nature. What is the divisions of nature? Oh, he wrote, Dionysius wrote on divine names. God is the nameless one. Now God is the holy other. When I went to Mass Easter Sunday morning, I don't know if I told you this, I picked up a little pamphlet written by a Dutch priest who had been studying under Karl Barth. And the last sentence in that pamphlet is, God is the Holy Other, and we are to join God and the Holy Other. Don't you see? This miserable Dutch priest is using Karl Barth's pagan theology in order to affect the church union so that we can all go into the Holy Other, of which nobody knows what it is. That's the blessed event. Now, uh, don't you see? This nameless one, this anonymous one, the super essential deity. Oh, you all, we must use reason. As far as we can, but by reason, we can't get to the heights of things because reason means differentiation. You've got to get above all differentiation, which means mystical uplifting, as you remember with Plato, when Plato himself, by reason, could get only so far. The good God and the principle of evil, back of the evil and of the good, the diatema of the inspired lifted him as on wings. Mr. Smith wanted to take me up in his plane yesterday. Well, that's the way diatema of the inspired just took up Plato above all that he could when he was just on terra firma, walking around or even with a tremendous powerful car. Well, don't you see? Here we are being lifted up into that Indian mysticism as well. I mean, it's Hinduism, it's Buddhism, it's every form of Eastern mysticism. The more you know about the differences between them, the, the better it is. But you still know that identically the same view of God and of man is underneath them, or virtually so. Well, so you have here, don't you see this theology of pure negative theology. This is what is meant by negative theology. In his first book on Romans, Barth says, God is the God of pure negation. Nobody knows anything about him, no matter what you say about God, by way of affirmation, or by a way of negation, or by way of analogy. You are still sure to be wrong. All predication is differentiation. 
and all differentiation is, of course, limitation, infinitude. And if you really want to be yourself, you must be lifted out of yourself and you must be reabsorbed into deity. So here you have negative theology beginning to come into the church, negative theology. And then with it you have mystical theology. And you have at the same time symbolical theology. Because what you say in terms of words are symbols, are just forms of speech pertaining to that. You don't know anything. And then you have, after this, you have natural theology. Now, when you come to the point of natural theology, then, of course, you naturally begin to think of the Roman Catholics proper, think proper, and you begin to think more particularly of Thomas Aquinas. Well, let's think of these things. They fit together. They belong together. If you've got one, you've got them all. And why is that? Because you've started, as the Germans would say, von unten, from the bottom. You have not started von oben, from above, by revelation, the way Noah got his information about the future and about the past. But you start down here with man, and you say, well, look, around me are all kinds of facts. Now, I'm wondering what those facts are. Certainly, the God that is back of them can't be limited the way I am limited. He must be beyond. And when I say beyond, I mean beyond, and I mean beyond the beyond. And I keep on going higher and higher. I drop off all individual characteristics. Now, that is the idea of natural theology. Thomas Aquinas, of course, before him, even other people also, and Anselm's ontological argument was an argument based on the idea that being involves, any form of being involves absolute being. Well, we don't know anything about absolute being. Absolute being is wholly beyond anything that we can experience. So, and not only Anselm, but Aquinas, who opposes the ontological argument and has the cosmological argument and the teleological argument, those are the three main ones, of course, the three main arguments for the existence of God. You can talk about others, but they all come down to the question of what is the ultimate being, what is finally the question of ontology, what is the cause back of everything, and what is the purpose of everything. Under those three, you pretty much include everything that anybody says about any subject. Well, what always happens is that you, when you start from the bottom, as all of these arguments do, they all start by way of dropping individual characteristics in order to get to a God that is not limited. He is not temporal. He's not spatial. Well, our experience is temporal and spatial. We have no other experiences but that of time-space differentiation. So we must have a God that is eternal. Now, we don't know what eternity is, though, except that it's the negation of time. It's not this. It's 
we have individuality, we must have a super individual God. We must have, by our concepts, we must rise higher and higher in the scale of being. And so we get to this holy other. Well, that's negative theology. But notice that that is attained by the method of natural theology. And that that involves mystical lifting up, so far as you are concerned, you are being lifted up into that other. If you, And that's why I quote, have quoted Goethe before, if the individual speaks up there, then it isn't any longer the individual that speaks. Then you have lost your individuality. Now that means that in mysticism, all medieval period, as you know, is full of mysticism. Now we can speak about mystical experience in the sense that we being one with Christ, love Christ. But you see, that's a totally, that's an experience of love and devotion to a known Christ in this world. But here it is a metaphysical absorption, losing of your individual being into that absolutely holy other being of whom you say nothing and can say nothing. So everything that you say is symbolical. Now notice how similar all of this is to what we have today, and we'll come to that very shortly. That is to say, we have now the I-it dimension and the I-thou dimension, and what you say here can at most be symbolical of what is up there. And that's why all current theologies is really symbolical theology, underneath which idea is that of the impossibility of saying anything directly about God. Now, I'd like for you to ask questions about these things why they are involved in one another. And if you don't see that, or if that, I'm just trying to bring it all together in a hurry. I don't kind of understand the association with the mystic and the natural. Oh, very good. Well, you see, natural means not starting from the revelation of God through Christ in Scripture, right? Natural theology. Now, we believe in natural revelation. In other words, we believe that God has revealed himself in nature. Calvin's Institutes are full of that idea. Man ought to see God everywhere, in every tree, every fact of nature. God is there present. His face is there. Now, that is revelation in nature, or if you want to call it natural revelation. But natural theology is man's response to that revelation you can find any number of books in which natural revelation and natural theology are just taken for granted as being the same thing. You find that in Buswell's writing. You find it in Gordon Clark's writings. You find it, generally speaking, it's assumed in Roman Catholic theology. Now, underneath that lies the assumption that the natural man gives the right interpretation of the revelation of nature. Now, that is precisely not true according to Scripture. The, rebel, the natural man is interested in holding under the truth that appears to him in nature. Now, there is therefore nothing wrong with arguing about nature is revealed. But now that we become sinners, we need the scriptures to tell us the nature psalms. We have nature psalms in, this, in the Bible, have we not? The glory, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork many other cases of that sort. Well, that dis speaks of the marvelous display of God in this created world, including ourselves. The 139th Psalm is about ourselves, isn't it? About 
how wonderfully and fearfully we have been made by God. And we, we adore God in that. But don't you see, they are starting from below here, from the self, the human self, as intelligible to itself, whether God exists or doesn't exist. And then from the facts, not as already from the beginning, thought of as created and as revealing God, but as possibly pointing to some sort of something. Well, and then you have logic, and you are beginning to draw conclusions from these facts. You say, this is that way and that's that way, therefore that must follow. Well, all of those arguments for the existence of God are therefore based on the assumption that God doesn't exist in the biblical sense of the term. They start from man as though he are not created. That's the assumption of every one of the traditional arguments for the existence of God. They, all of them, if they proved anything, they would disprove the existence of God instead of proving it because they start fountain from the bottom. Now, you cannot do that. You see, the only way you can start as a Christian is to start from Christ's self-revelation, God's revelation in history. Now, therefore, when you take them this way, you want to find what is the source of nature. You want to find the cause, the first cause. Or you want to find an absolute being. This is temporal being, physical, finite being. And you want to have an absolute purpose. Now, in the case of all of these concepts, all three of these concepts, what you get, if you, get, you go higher, you get not a cause in the sense that something that's up there has created this world. We just, a while ago, we talked of the fact that the God of Plato and of Aristotle doesn't, do not create, do not create. They are forms. They are attained by negation. And therefore, they do not positively create. Now, in Plotinus, and that is, uh, I didn't bring that out, Arthur Lovejoy has a book, The Chain of Being, great chain of being in which he discusses this thing he says it's a very strange thing the God that is believed in is attained by pure negation he's up there nobody knows anything about him and then that self same God is set to be the source of all the plenitude of this world the principle of plenitude he says there's an inherent contradiction in it now he includes the Christian position in this charge he says Augustine also has it and Christian believers but what he says is true about Plotinus, that is to say, about Greek philosophy. You, you get to a god by way of negation, from nature, from your study of nature. So you get from the study of nature to pure negation. And then you say that that god of which you know nothing is the overflowing source of all good and plurality in this world. Now, then, if you say that, to get this god and you want to be one with that God, you have to be lifted up in the scale of being. That's mystical theology. That's negative theology. You start from natural theology. And then everything you say is allegorical or is symbolical. And you see how that is fits in with Plato's scheme of thinking. Here's being, and here's absolute knowledge, episteme. Here's non-being, of which there's absolute ignorance. And here's a little being, and here's right opinion, or doxa, he calls it, guesswork opinion. Therefore, our statements are nothing ever but guesswork. 
Therefore, our Westminster Confession on this basis would be a, an allegorical expression of a mystical uh, idea of a mystical absorption with a holy other. That's the Confession of 1967. Gives, a, gives to all of this a wonderful expression. Are there any other questions at this point? Yes. Yeah, well, you're quite right, of course. We're not against, we're not claiming that God is, we are identical with God and all of that. And there is, but you see, the Christian position doesn't start with negation, doesn't start with man. It starts with God's revelation to man. And then man interprets himself in terms of that positive. In other words, God is the creator of this world. That's a positive relation, you see. And then after you have said that, then you can say, we are not eternal. We are not what God is. If you first said, we are like what God is, as creatures. If you said, we know God, then our knowledge of God is genuine, but it isn't comprehensive. And then when we introduce negations, God isn't this, then we're not mystics in the medieval sense. Here, the whole idea is that you start from man, and then you don't have a creator God. And then your negations em empty, uh, enter into a pure negation. And then God himself is not the creator. Now, you see, there's a totally different approach. We are against that scheme as a whole. We have totally different meanings in the distinctions that we make between God. We say, God, when Isaiah says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. Now that might be quoted as though it were evidence of this type of negation, right? It isn't. Because all of the Old Testament presupposes the creation of man in the image of God and the directness of God's revelation in this world through Christ who spoke through the prophets of himself. And therefore, in that sense, you see, we start with that. You, you take a family, a little child, is the child of a father and mother. Now that's the first relation. Then he can, then you can say, I'm not an adult and I'm not able to smoke and I'm not able, I shouldn't do this and I can't do. And you can make all kinds of negations on the basis of that original positive affirmation. But if a child were over here in the woods by itself, Robinson Crusoe-wise, just imagine Robinson Crusoe having never had any parents. Now he had parents and all of that, of course, but suppose he hadn't. Suppose you can imagine, pure, and then he would say, rise higher and higher in the scale of being, and then say, God is the God of pure negation. He is wholly other. He must be higher and therefore wholly different. Now that's the wholly other idea over here, you see, the wholly other. In order to get elevation and transcendence, you get complete negation and emptiness. The only way that biblical idea of transcendence is based on the biblical idea of immanence. You see, it's an awfully good thing to realize that you must not go to the dictionary. Now, to get your 
definitions of terms. Suppose you went to the dictionary and you went to look for transcendence and you went to look for the word immanence and then you would get some expression to the effect that transcendence means holy above and immanence within. And then you would say, now look here, who were the transcendence people? Oh, they were the... They were the deists. They believed in the transcendence of God. And then who were the eminence people? They were the pantheists. They believed that God is wholly eminent in the universe. But we don't want to be deists. We don't want to be pantheists. But we are lucky. We, have, we combine transcendence and eminence. And we are theists. Now that's the way I used to have read a little book on Reformed Doctrine, Bosma's Reformed Doctrine. When I was a child, we had that in the Christian Reformed Church. That's the way they would patch deism and pantheism together and make theism out of it. Now, that's not the way you make theological systems. You don't get a block like this. You don't call, now my telephone number is Adams 33125. If any of you want any information on any subject, you might call me up. <laughs> but that's the lumberyard, so to speak. Give me five concrete blocks of eminence and ten concrete blocks or five blocks of transcendence and I'll patch them together by cement and then I'll have a nice structure out of it. That's just not the way. A living organism isn't built that way, is it? In other words, the meaning of transcendence and eminence in the Christian system is determined by the system of which they are together apart. You see, here transcendence means transcendence of the creator above his creature. Here transcendence means transcendence out of contactness with some sort of something that is nowhere uh, uh, above a man who doesn't know himself in the first place who he is because he has no imminence of God as the creator within him. Don't you see? You see how the difference... And therefore, here imminence would be that you're wholly imminent in God or God wholly imminent in you and you'd lost your identity. So this is the most horrible way of building theologies. Now I know that's done right along still. That's one of the great weaknesses of fundamentalism. You should burn all dictionaries to begin with. Now secretaries always have dictionaries. I see secretaries at our place. Do you still have to look up a word? in your dictionary and then they look up transcendence and and invariably in my junior apologetics class these two words are confused don't you see immanence means the immediateness or possible immediateness of the return of Christ immanence means the presentness of Christ with the world but is it plain that you cannot build theology out of blocks now, that is what Roman Catholicism does. It has 500 blocks of Aristotelianism. It has 650 blocks of Christianity. And then it mixes them, don't you see? And that's the hink illi lacrimae, hence all the tears, hence all the confusion about a theology that's built out of, up out of two mutually destructive motifs that are bound to become at war, come at warfare one another at every point unless you're thoughtless. And the great blessing of the church is to be thoughtless and, and not to think and to be confused and to live 
In blessed confusion, oh blessed confusion, thou spirit divine. Don't you see? Well, is it about time for recess, Mr.